like to welcome everybody back from the break, and uh, I'm glad that the uh, energy level has continued unabated. Uh, we're going to uh, now continue uh, the Cori update uh, with a uh, presentation about the, uh, the newer therapeutic agents that were presented at Cori. I think you'll be uh, pleased to see that uh, drug development hasn't stopped, and things that are good are going to continue to get better. Uh, to do that, uh, we've invited uh, Constance Benson, uh, also from the University of California, San Diego, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Director of the uh, Training Program in Infectious Diseases at UCSD uh, to give this update. Uh, I have a lot more to say about her, but she told me I should not because I'd be taking away time from her. So with no further ado, let me introduce Dr. Benson. Well, I'd like to thank the organizers for asking me to speak today. I'm going to concentrate my comments on new drugs and novel strategies as they were presented at CROI this year. So I'm not going to cover every week 96 update of the week 48 data from every phase three clinical trial. Uh, so if you were looking forward to that, you'll have to do another CROI update. So. <laughs> Um, my financial relationships are indicated here, as are the learning objectives from today, which I think are fairly obvious to all of you. And I, this is one of my favorite slides. The author of the slide is in the audience. He presented it during a symposium at CROI 2016, but it really crystallizes our thoughts about why we need new antiretroviral drugs and why there's continued emphasis on developing these. And this has to do with the big goals, many of which you heard about this morning, both from the WHO as well as uh, the announcement in the State of the Union address this year for the goals for the U.S. But with those big goals, there also remain big challenges for all of us in dealing with the lifetime of individuals who are living with HIV. And this requires treatment for up to six to eight decades after initiation of therapy and attendant by numerous end organ complications and complications of antiretroviral therapy that may interfere with adherence, cause treatment fatigue, and may be impacted by drug interactions that occur with comorbidity treatment for people as they age. And obviously, therapy options for infants, children, pregnant women lag considerably behind those options for otherwise uh, affected adults in our country and elsewhere. And lastly, emergence of resistance continues to be a challenge and will continue to be a challenge, particularly in those parts of the area that have limited resources, which I think now applies to the United States, and limited resources for viral load and drug resistance monitoring. So in that context, I'm going to talk about new compounds that are novel and how they were presented at CROI. The first of these was a novel first-in-class capsid inhibitor prepared by Gilead. It is active against a broad range of HIV-1 isolates, including those resistant to all existing antiretroviral therapy classes. This particular compound modulates the stability and or transport of capsid complexes, and it inhibits the replication pathway 
for capsid production um, at many steps in the process, from disassembly and nuclear transport to virus production and reassembly of the capsid into a mature virion. The drug has picomolar activity in vitro and is more potent than many of our current antiretroviral drugs. So all of that buildup, of course, leads to the first phase one single ascending dose study in healthy volunteers. This is a drug that was given subcutaneously, was well tolerated without serious adverse events or other than transient injection site reactions. And as you can see from the right-hand side of this, of this slide, there was a nice dose-response curve seen based on the different dosage levels that were applied. And for most of these doses, there were measurable concentrations at, with prolonged exposure obvious out to more than 24 weeks. And at the higher doses of 100 to 200 milligrams, plasma concentrations at the 12-week mark were above the protein-adjusted EC95, supporting every 12-week dosing for this compound. So it may be one of those that moves into clinical trials as one of the long-acting injectable agents for use in clinical practice. The next compound is a novel maturation inhibitor. This drug, prepared by GSK, binds to GAG. It inhibits the last proteolytic cleavage event between the P24 capsid and spacer peptides. Prior, prior uh, types of maturation inhibitors have been developed. We've presented them at this conference in previous years. But they've all had issues with naturally occurring resistance due to polymorphisms that have developed as a consequence of viral replication. And this has limited the utility of the earlier ones of these compounds in clinical trials. This particular version has in vitro nanomolar activity, minimal protein binding, and inhibits HIV-1 that contains many of these polymorphisms that are naturally occurring. So one of the first studies to be presented now was a phase two study in 33 ART-naive individuals with high CD4 counts and detectable pla plasma viral loads. And it was a two-phase or two-part study. After screening, individuals who were eligible received a 100 milligram dose in combination with cobicistat. In this particular compound, the boosters and, and ritonavir used in vitro and cobicistat in vivo are prolong the half-life of the compound. And 10 individuals received a single dose or received 10 days of dosing, and then after the last dose, were followed for an additional uh, out to 21 days evaluation for viral load. The data from this Part A were used to inform the dosing and schedule of events for Part B of the study. And in that study, or in that portion of the study, there was a dose de-escalation strategy used with an initial cohort receiving a 200 milligram dose followed by a cohort receiving 50 and then 20 milligrams, all in combination with cobicistat. And again, they received 10 days of dosing and then were followed out to day 21 to look at virologic activity. So suffice it to say that there was a nice dosing 
dose response uh, to these, this compound as well as revealed on the right-hand side of the slide. The maximum antiviral effect was observed in the 200 milligram cohort, and there were, in that cohort there was a mean 1.7 log decline in viral load. Interestingly, that decline persisted after the last dose was given for about four additional days, still persisted um, viral suppression out to day 14. Two patients among the 33 that in, enrolled in Part B had treatment emerging admixtures of polymorphisms, although only one of these developed phenotypic resistance to the drug, suggesting that it may still have activity and may not suffer completely from some of the resistance issues that occurred with earlier congeners of this class of drugs. Again, it was well tolerated. There were no serious adverse events or laboratory abnormalities of any specific pattern seen in the study. The next new compound that was presented at Croy was a drug developed by Merck, and this is a novel nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor class of drugs with a unique mechanism of action at the level of reverse transcriptase translocation in the replicative pathway. This compound, too, is potent against most resistant mutants. The triphosphorylated uh, compound has an IC50 for HIV that's greater than fourfold lower than those for other NRTIs, so a very potent compound. And the PK data are listed on the right-hand side of the slide and show the concentra concentration time profile with a once-daily dose, again showing a nice dose response to the triphosphorylated um, portion of the compound, and the concentration time, time profile when the doses were given once every week also showed elevated levels that suggest it can be used in intermittent dosing as a long-acting agent. Uh, you heard a lot already about broadly neutralizing monoclonal antibodies, and I'll like to preface this uh, particular slide by just saying that broadly neutralizing monoclonal antibodies as an immunobiologic are being employed in HIV both for prevention, being evaluated in the context of preventive monoclonal antibodies used or utilized as a vaccine, but also being developed and studied in clinical trials as an adjunct in treatment of HIV. And so some of the comments about this particular new or novel monoclonal antibody relate to its potential utility in both strategies for treatment. So PGT-121 is a human IgG1 monoclonal antibody that's tar that targets the V3 envelope epitope. It's a potent neutralizer of 60 to 70 percent of global HIV, HIV viruses. I guess that's uh, redundant, HIV-1. It's active in a SHIV-infected monkey model, both in prevention and in reducing viral load in uh, SHIV-infected monkeys who are infected with uh, SHIV. It's a, this particular study is a first in-human phase one safety and dose ranging study of the compound, and there were three groups of patients tested, kind of going back to the construct that I was talking about, its evaluation both as a preventive and as a treatment adjunct for HIV-infected individuals. The three groups that were studied in this, in this trial were HIV-uninfected, um, healthy volunteers, people with HIV infection who were fully suppressed on antiretroviral therapy, and 
treatment-naive HIV-infected individuals were not yet on antiretroviral therapy. The compound was safe and well-tolerated in all three groups. Interestingly, the half-life of the compound in the uninfected population was 23 days. In the viremic-infected population was 13 days. And as suggested by the authors of the paper, this related to the fact of that the antibody was binding to circulating HIV antigen in people with detectable viremia. Um, baseline demographics are outlined here and similar to all of the three previous studies that I showed, highlights the fact that the majority of these compounds are being largely tested in Caucasian male populations, although there's a little bit more diversity in the population in each of these than we've seen in many new compounds over past years. And this is true regardless of the class of individuals being evaluated. So the interesting findings from this study are that patients who were viremic and had high viral loads at baseline, and this was de defined as individuals who had viral loads between 3.3 and 5 log copies per milliliter, four of the patients had no response to the monoclonal antibody, and five were classified as responders. So the rest of the evaluation really related to the responders. And the median viral load decline in the responders was about 1.7 log, as previously suggested with uh, some of the other compounds. But all of these rebounded after a single dose by day 21. And although baseline virus was sensitive, all of the viruses in the rebounders were resistant to the monoclonal antibody. Interestingly, in those who entered the study with a low viral load at baseline, meaning less than 3.3 log copies per ml, there was a prolonged antiviral response seen. One patient had a viral load below the limit of quantification that persisted all the way out to day 168, and a second patient had no virus rebound. The one patient who did have viral rebound uh, had susceptible virus at that day 168 time point. And the authors um, demonstrated no evidence of enhanced cellular immune responses to this monoclonal antibody and suggested that this was the longest observed period of time of viral suppression following a single infusion of, of this broadly neutralizing antibody. So I think where we put this in the context of all of the other broadly neutralizing antibodies being developed, there was a, a nice presentation actually given, I think it was last year at the AIDS Clinical Trials Group uh, meeting, trying to review the preponderance of data that have been accumulated in the context of at least a therapeutic usage of broadly neutralizing antibodies to suggest that one is not going to be sufficient. We may need broadly or more uh, broadly specific or uh, broadly variant specificity of monoclonal antibodies, and there's a tri-specific monoclonal antibody being tested in clinical trials right now in the ACTG, but combinations of these are likely to be necessary, both for an adjunctive effect in individuals who are living with HIV infection already and need treatment as well as for prevention in order to encompass the broad diversity of HIV circulating in the globe. And then the last new or novel compound I'm going to talk about is Fostemsevir. This is further along in development and has been presented by 
previous companies. It seems to be one of those things like Pac-Man that gets gobbled up by a different company, depending on which one decides they're no longer going to do HIV therapeutics. But this particular compound now being developed by GSK in a prodrug formulation gets metabolized to Temsevir, which is the active compound, and it is a CD4 attachment inhibitor. In the previous iteration by Bristol-Myers Squibb, it was shown in phase 2b studies to have no cross-resistance with other antiretroviral drugs, and in dose-ranging studies in treatment-experienced individuals was shown to have comparable rates of virologic suppression at 48 weeks when compared with atazanavir-ritonavir, both in combination with raltegravir and tenofovir. So interesting um, regimens being used in treatment experience populations. So what was presented at CROI this year was um, follow-up on the week 48 data that actually I promise not to present the week 96 data, but I'm presenting the week 192 data to, to show you that the patients at the end of week 48 were actually switched to the highest dosing level, 1,200 milligrams given once daily in combination with raltegravir and tenofovir, and then continued um, comparison to the atazanavir control arm. Um, demographics are listed here, but you can see out to week 92, the curves are relatively overlapping, had comparable virologic suppression, and low overall cumulative and treatment-limiting adverse events were less common in the fostemsevir arm compared to the atazanavir-ritonavir arm. Not unexpected given the comparator arm. How this particular compound will be deployed in clinical practice, I think, remains to be seen. Most of its testing now is being done in treatment-experienced ex populations. So I'm going to move on now and talk about new strategies, but concentrating a lot of my comments on the novel formulations that are in development for long-acting compounds and how those compounds are being evaluated in two-drug therapeutic regimens. So this was a slide also adapted from a talk at one of the symposium at CROI given by Laura Waters, a very nice talk that I would encourage you to go online and look at if you would have more interest in the details, but really started out asking the question, will two-drug regimens actually be as good as our traditional conventional three-drug regimens for virologic suppression? The first study to really test this hypothesis was one done by the AIDS Clinical Trials Group Network, 5142, and it compared the combination of efavirenz and two nucleosides, uh, two NRTIs, with lopinavir-ritonavir and two NRTIs versus the combination of efavirenz and lopinavir-ritonavir with no NRTIs. You can see the curves there. The lopinavir-ritonavir arm did the worst of all of these, but the NRTI-sparing arm virologically did reasonably well in comparison to the efavirenz 3-drug arm. However, there were significantly worse lipid levels, as you might imagine, in the ritonavir-boosted arm, and NNRTI resistance occurred in two-thirds of those individuals in both in the uh, NRTI-sparing efavirenz arm. So this was largely considered a response to that question, no, this two-drug regimen wasn't as good as three-drug therapy, at least some three-drug therapies. 
However, there have been a number of other studies that have attempted to address two-drug treatment, both as an initial therapy in treatment-naive populations and a switch to two-drug therapy as a viral, as a drug conservation arm in people who are fully suppressed. And I, again, borrowed the thumbs-down sign from Laura Waters and highlighted those that were failures of the two-drug approach. But you can see there were still a couple of regimens here that did look like they were reasonably comparable to the three-drug regimens in the studies as they were tested. And those are the darunavir-ritonavir plus 3-TC studies and adazanavir-ritonavir plus 3-TC studies. So suggesting that one nucleoside analog with a boosted PI may have reasonable activity as a two-drug regimen. Now let's flash forward to what's happening with more modern or uh, two-drug regimens in clinical trials. This is a summary slide. Again, I'm not going through all of the data that have accumulated with these phase three clinical trials, but just suffice it to say that the Gemini 1 and 2 study evaluated in treatment-naive individuals the two-drug combination of dolutegravir with 3-TC and compared it to a conventional three-drug regimen. And in that study population at week 48, there was comparable, comparable suppression of viral, uh, viral load to less than 50 copies. There were no treatment-emergent um, integrase inhibitor or NRTI mutations. The only caveat in those studies was that the two-drug regimen did not perform quite as well in those with who entered the study with low CD4 counts below 200. The SWORD 1 and 2 studies were switch studies that evaluated dolutegravir plus rilpivirine as a two-drug regimen and compared that um, to individuals who continued their baseline fully suppressive three-drug antiretroviral therapy. So patients were randomized once they had been on a suppressive regimen for at least six months to receive or to switch to the two-drug regimen or continue their three-drug regimen. Again, at week 48, ex uh, comparable levels of virologic suppression were seen, and as patients were followed out to week 100, there were three of 10 people who had virologic failure in the switch arm who did develop NNRTI resistance, suggesting that that rilpivirine component of the two-drug regimen may be vulnerable to development of resistance. And then lastly, the LATTE 1 and 2 studies evaluated the investigational drug cabotegravir and after a, a four-week induction phase with oral cabotegravir, abacavir, and 3-TC, patients were randomized to cabotegravir and rilpivirine as long-acting injectable agents versus continuing with their oral regimen. And the outcome of that trial showed comparable virologic suppression in the two-drug therapy arm compared to the three-drug arm across all different dosing schedules. There was a follow-up to Gemini 1 and 2, this time not the week 96 follow-up, but an actual innovative uh, attempt to look at those people who achieved undetectable viral loads, how undetectable were they really in the two-drug treatment arm. And again, remember these were people who started two-drug therapy with dolutegravir and 3-TC as initial therapy in treatment-naive population. 
So what's being evaluated in this study is an endpoint being referred to as target not detected. And this is using a ultra-sensitive Abbott asset, real-time assay to look for virologic detection in people who have undetectable viral loads by traditional measurements. And what they showed, and you can see uh, the curves are overlapping on the right-hand side of the slide, that similar proportions of participants in the two-drug versus the three-drug arm had target not detected in, at all time points measured in this study. And interestingly, for those who entered the trial with high viral loads greater than 100,000 copies, the two-drug arm actually performed slightly better than the three-drug arm. Um, median time to target not detected was also similar across all of these, and again, the time to reaching that time point was shorter for the two-drug arm in high viral load patients. So an interesting study that I hope we'll see more data from in the future. And then the last two uh, strategy trials, I guess you would call them, uh, looked again at the cabotegravir and ropivirine long-acting parenteral administration, and these were long-awaited data from the 48-week endpoints of the ATLAS and FLARE trials. The ATLAS trial looked at individuals who were on stable ART, either their first or second regimen, had undetectable viral loads for more than six months on their previous therapy and had no previous episodes of virologic failure. These individuals were then randomized to the four-week um, oral cabotegravir plus ropivirine regimen or to continue their baseline ART. And then at the end of four weeks, the cabotegravir ropivirine group was switched over to once a month intramuscular injections of the 400 milligram dose of cabotegravir and the 600 milligram dose of ropivirine. So the primary endpoint was um, the proportion with detectable viral loads at week 48 in the snapshot and a 6% inferiority margin. So this is the summary slide. As you can see, the two bars, regardless of how you look at them, look similar with uh, similar levels of virologic suppression, virologic non-response, and the adjusted treatment difference in the uh, primary and key secondary endpoints showed that the long-acting cabotegravir ropivirine regimens were non-inferior to the continuation of three-drug three therapy. And the two of the three patients in the two-drug arm who developed virologic failure over that 48-week period of treatment actually were found to have baseline NNRTI resistance-associated mutations at the time they started the two-drug regimen. Drugs were very well tolerated, no serious adverse events. The major adverse event was injection site reaction, which was mild and resolved within seven days. The FLARE study, also a similar study design, only looking at treatment-naive individuals, who had detectable viral loads, this time being screened before they were started in the study for NNRTI resistance-associated mutations, all underwent an induction phase with 20 weeks of three-drug therapy, dolutegravir, abacavir, and 3TC, given once daily. And then at day zero after that week 20 induction phase, they were then randomized to either continue that regimen or to receive the four-week oral therapy of cabotegravir and ropivirine, and then switched over to the intramuscular long-acting formulation of cabotegravir and ropivirine. Again, similar endpoints, 
and again, similar results. So the week 48 data showed uh, nearly identical virologic success, virologic non-response, and non-inferiority with comparison for all of the primary and secondary endpoints. In this uh, version of the uh, study, there were three virolo confirmed virologic failures in each arm, and in the two-drug arm, emergent NNRTI and INSTI resistance mutations were detected in virologic failures, and those were not seen in the three-drug arm continuation. Um, this just uh, is a slide to remind everybody that they did measure plasma concentrations at multiple time points after long-acting injections, and these levels stayed steady throughout the dosing period of the 48 weeks. Again, well-tolerated regimens. So this kind of brings us to the point now where I think we've had a number of two-drug regimens that have been tested in clinical trials, and we're now, I think, approaching the point where we are asking where do these two-drug therapies fit in our treatment armamentarium. There is the potential for clinical benefit, either in reducing toxicity associated with NRTIs, potentially improving patient satisfaction, and potentially reducing cost. But there are subsets of the population for which these two drug regimens have some of the similar challenges. We can't use them in people with underlying hepatitis B co-infection because they need the tenofovir and lamivudine or FTC component. There's the concern about adherence. What happens when you actually have a delayed or a missed dose or multiple missed doses with these compounds? They all have the attend same attendant issues with drug interactions, barrier to resistance, potential toxicities, which you'll hear more about um, as we go through the day with dolutegravir and some of the other new compounds. And then what uh, Laura Waters presented as the Posniak paradox, I don't know that uh, Anton actually coalesced all of these comments all uh, as his only his paradox, but suffice it to say that when you look at this and you think you've got a thousand patients who are stable in your clinic, they may be seen on average uh, twice a year, maybe for 15 to 30 minutes, and that comes to about a thousand clinic hours. But if you are on a long-acting injectable and you need to come in for injectable doses, then that might mean six visits a year, 3,000 clinic hours, and that contributes to patient time, patient inconvenience, issues of confidentiality with the injectable drug, tolerability over the long term, and certainly the costs associated with the staff, administration, prescribing, and all of the things that go along with clinic visits. There have been attempts to look at cost effectiveness with two-drug therapy. This is a nice computer simulation, but I'll emphasize that it's a computer simulation. It uses data from some of the earlier long-acting ART trials, but attempted to look at the cost effectiveness in three populations, in treatment-naive populations, in people who are failing a first-line therapy, and in people with multiple prior ART failures who have trouble with adherence. All populations where we might think that a two-drug long-acting regimen might be useful. And what they showed, interestingly, was that the use of long-acting antiretroviral therapy had a modest increase in overall life expectancy in their simulation with multiple adjustments, of course. 
but also that cost-effectiveness could be achieved if the costs of the drug regimens were relatively comparable to those that we currently see with three-drug therapy in these settings. In particular, the $24,000 to $27,000 per year for the long-acting injectable versus daily oral triple drug therapy is pretty comparable. So I think what that means is that we're still in a little bit of a gray zone with what to do about recommendations. Again, we'll hear more from uh, in the case presentations later this morning about what people are doing in clinical practice right now, but our current guidelines suggest that two-drug therapy should really only be considered when you can't use one of the NRTI components. The regimens that are recommended are the ones I've highlighted that have been studied in clinical trials, and the IAS-USA recommendations recapitulate this as well, although suggesting that at least in the switch setting for viral, virally suppressed patients, it may be reasonable to use them in patients who had no prior virologic failure or transmitted drug resistance. This is my last slide. And I'm just going to highlight a couple of studies about novel formulations, just to make the point that what's being attempted with novel formulations now is to convert many of our current compounds into long-acting, potentially injectable regimens. The first is TAF, and this also was a simulation study suggesting that if you had a TAF-eluting subcutaneous implant, looking at all of the PK data that are available on such approaches, you would need to have 0.6 milligrams eluted per day from that implant to achieve diphosphate, uh, tenofovir diphosphate concentrations above the target in the intracellular milieu. So that may be a big challenge to achieve in uh, both PrEP and in treatment. And then nanoparticles, looking, taking even these long-acting injectable formulations, turning them into prodrugs and putting them into nanoparticles suggests that we can take these compounds and turn them into even longer-acting compounds that still have sustained activity and improved PK. So I'll finish just by saying that, as Dr. Schooley reiterated, the pipeline, pipeline for development of novel approaches to antiretroviral therapy is still relatively robust and offers us the potential for comparable or improved activity, comparable or improved tolerability and resistance profiles, potentially the promise of few, fewer drugs and fewer pills, potentially lower cost. But where the, exactly we're going to go remains a gray zone, and I think as we start to deploy some of these compounds in clinical practice, we'll have better information about how generalizable the results are we're seeing from clinical trials. Cabotegravir and rilpivirine long-acting uh, regimens are, are being submitted to the FDA currently, and I think at the end of this month, and so they may be available for clinical practice in the very near future. So, thank you. All right, thanks very much for a comprehensive talk about uh, an area that, uh, thank goodness, is continuing to evolve. So, I have a couple of questions already. I'd encourage the rest of you to uh, either ask them from your seats or pass up these uh, anonymous cards uh, if you're shy or even if you're not. Uh, and uh, let's see uh, if we can stump the uh, star here. Okay. Okay. Um, if you suggest the need for new antiretrovirals for many reasons mentioned, why do people 
mock the idea of sequencing, i.e. start art with rel tegravir instead of dolutegravir. Um, are you talking about sequencing dolutegravir to uh, rel tegravir and switching back and forth? Is that what the question was about? No, starting with Ah, okay. Okay, I, I think that's an interesting thought. And I guess if you think of it as a concept rather than using your two yeah, right. examples, but that effectively is what was being tested in the ATLAS and FLARE trials. So, for example, starting off with four or five weeks of a three-drug regimen with dolutegravir, 3-TC, and, and uh, abacavir, and then switching to a two-drug long-acting injectable regimen is one of those strategies, where you start off with something, get somebody virologically suppressed, have them tolerate that regimen, and then at some future point decide to switch to a two-drug regimen. So I think conceptually what you're talking about is being done at least in some clinical trials. How you would have that play out with the panoply of drugs that are available to us in clinical practice, I think that's a little harder to conceive. Certainly, if someone started off on a drug regimen that might be a twice-daily regimen and you think that at some point that's not really working very well for adherence, switching to a well-tolerated once-daily regimen, we kind of already do that in clinical practice. So I think there is some sequencing of a lot of the compounds available to us now, but they're being done for different reasons and really having to do with individualizing the patient experience, which I think we all have to do at some level because they don't, a lot of these studies don't necessarily apply to the kinds of patients that we see in clinical practice. So I think a broader answer to your question remains as these drugs come along and as these compounds come along and we begin to be able to use them in clinical practice, really intensively looking at the data and outcomes associated with that might give us better information than we can glean from clinical trials. Okay, for those of you who haven't been asking questions, we're putting these in a fishbowl and a new Tesla will be offered at the end of the day to the person whose question gets drawn. So feel free to, if you wish, to ask questions. Okay, so one question was one that was, uh, I think, written before your summary about where two drugs in clinical practice are now. Uh, I think you answered that very well. The, the next uh, issue is, do we know what happened to the people in the long-acting uh, cabotegravir injectable study uh, if they missed a monthly dose? Did, was there enough experience with that to have any generalizations? Well, I don't know if all of those data were presented in, in the 10-minute presentations. Do you remember, Joe? There, Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to to make that comment that within the protocol, if patients knew that they weren't going to be able to make the timing of their injection, they were given the oral regimen as a bridging dose to the next time they could come in for IM injections. But I don't think they really presented that bridging data. But as Joe said, 98% of people completed um, 
on time their injections. And there was also a component that was presented in poster presentations that I didn't go over today where they looked at patient satisfaction with receiving um, 48 weeks of uh, monthly injections and many of those patients who continued on um, before they reached the uh, end of the study also. And the patient satisfaction was actually quite good. Now, one could say one year is really a relatively short period of time, whether people would, in would tolerate an IM injection forever for those six to eight decades in Joe Aaron's introductory slide, I think that remains to be seen. But the, the more, I think the more important question is what happens to those chaotic patient uh, situations that we all encounter where people disappear for three months and then come back and disappear again for three months and then come back. There's always the concern that, of course, you have a tail of drug concentration when they miss doses. It's a little different than just the NNRTI, PK tail kinds of things that we worried about in uh, pregnant women. Um, but the, the sort of tailing off of the drug concentrations for cabotegravir and ropivirine, at least in the short-term follow-up in the trials, is similar. So it may be less likely that people will have a prolonged period where they only have one drug in the system as opposed to two. But how long each remains above the concentration threshold for um, virologic suppression remains to be established in longer-term follow-up studies. So just there is no answer to that question right now. Okay, another question is would you uh, use any of these two drug regimens if you knew somebody had an M184V mutation? Well, you wouldn't probably want to use the three TC regimens. Um, although, as you saw from at least one of the trials, they didn't screen um, re NNRTI resistance associated mutations in the ATLAS trial because people had to be suppressed when they came into the trial. So all they had was the historical data from previous drug resistance testing. They didn't use that ultra-sensitive Abbott. But my understanding from the uh, company is they have those baseline isolates and they are going back to test what proportion of them actually had some form of resistance-associated mutations, including the 3TC, because they all got, um, at least in one of the studies, uh, 3TC-containing regimens. But having said that, um, dolutegravir and rilpivirine, if you are able to screen for resistance-associated mutations, it wouldn't really matter too much if they had an M184B mutation. So. Um, I think that would be a reasonable, cabotegravir, rilpivirine would be a reasonable two-drug regimen in that setting. This is kind of an extension of the same sort of a question. Uh, if somebody's suppressed and you don't have RNA to look at, are there, is there a role for looking at archived DNA for baseline resistance testing as you simplify regimens? That's actually exactly what the company is going to do. So to I don't have the answer to that question, but they have the retained samples, and that's what they're going to look at. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate the, the uh, talk. <laughs> We're ahead of schedule. I'm disappointed in myself for listening to her about not giving her the, uh, in the um, 
longer uh, introduction than I had planned. 